Right now, there are hundreds of deported veterans living in Mexico. These veterans join the U.S. military with the promise of obtaining residency, only to be deported after their service. Our investigation first uncovered at least 300 other veterans have now been deported overseas after getting out of the U.S. military service. My guest today, Jose Alanis, is a veteran himself and volunteers his time to go to the bunker, a support house in Tijuana for the deported veterans. Should people who put their lives on the line for the U.S. be denied VA benefits and be deported? On this episode, we'll explore why these veterans were deported and how U.S. policy and bureaucracy has failed them. You're listening to The Cassie Dillon Show. Jose Alanis, thanks for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So I just want to start with your background. You're a veteran. Um, I want to hear a little bit about what your service was like and why you joined the service. Yeah, so actually, um, I never really did plan on joining the military, to be honest with you. Um, I was one of those uh, kids that was doing everything they shouldn't have been doing when they were a teenager. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I got involved in the whole gang thing and all that stuff. And um, when I was 18, I found out I was having a daughter. Um, and that, honestly, that moment of that that event is really what like changed my mind around. I was like, you know what, I got to get out of here. And uh, it's not necessarily about doing something for me, but for, for her. Um, so yeah, I joined the military. And honestly, from the time that I met with the recruiter to the time that I was actually in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, which is the basic training for, for infantry. Oh, I've been there. That place is a very humid place. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was there and I was there in basic training actually in July, July of uh, oh, 2001 man. through uh, November. Yikes. Uh, yeah. It was, so it was fun. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I joined the military and I literally two weeks from the time that I met with the recruiter to when I was actually in basic training, I was just uh, ready to get out of there and, and move forward. Fun fact, my family didn't even believe I was joining the military. They were actually taking uh, bets to see how long I would last before the Uncle Sam kicked me out. I mean, it makes sense. You made your decision in two weeks to join the Army, and that's a little that's a little quick. Usually, you know, people are already working out and preparing for basic. So did you struggle in basic, not having, like, the physical time to prep for it? Yeah, initially I did. Um, I, I really did struggle. Uh, I want to say probably about the first uh, three weeks, it was a it was a struggle. But I mean, the first three weeks are honestly uh, the most challenging part because the drill sergeants are really doing exactly what they're there to do, which is break you down physically and mentally and mm-hmm. try to you know make you a better version of you. Um, so it was hard, but just kept kind of pushing on. And honestly, like I said, once again, because of my daughter, I just said, you know what, I can't, I can't quit. Uh, um, I, I got to stay here because it's, it's, it's for her. And if I go back home, I'm either going to wind up in jail or I'm going to wind up in a body bag. So I feel like a lot of people join because they want to have a, a foot forward. They want to get away from their hometown or get away from poverty or violence or something like that. So it totally makes sense why you did that. But what was your MOS or what do they call it in the army? Yeah, so my MOS was uh, 11 Charlie Infantry. Um, I'm orderman, and uh, it was honestly the, the the best choice that I made. Even though I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, because I feel like a lot of us when we joined, they're like, "What do you want to do in the military when you get to the recruited station?" 
And a lot of us guys was like, oh, I want to shoot things and blow things up. Congratulations, infantry. <laughs> <laughs> so you were infantry? Yeah. Wow. And what was, how long was your service? What was your first deployment? Tell me more. Yeah. So my, uh, I did uh, almost 11 years in the military. Um, I got out in uh, late 2011, in August of 2011. And my first deployment was actually Iraq. Um, we were actually in basic training when 9-11 happened. Oh, man. Yeah, we were actually at the qualification range shooting our M16s and trying to qualify. And none of us honestly believed the drill sergeant uh, when they came over the speaker at the range and let us know what was going on. Uh, we honestly thought that it was just them, you know, just trying to hype us up for, you know, the shooting range to try to get us to shoot better. And then when we got back to the barracks, uh, they, they pulled us off the range and they called us back to the barracks and pulled out the TVs and the little carts like they do in, t- in, in school. Um, and they were showing us what was going on. And that's when we realized uh, what we were dealing with. I, I honestly just thought after that that I was, you know, going to go here, going to do my, my time and uh, going to go to college and had that little, uh, had that situation happen. And so obviously I went to um, Iraq and for the initial invasion in 2003 uh, with 4th Infantry Division and was there until uh, 2004. When you saw that on the TV in basic training, was it a motivator to be like, all right, now I'm really motivated to finish this and I'm ready to go and, and fight? Like, did it piss you off? It did. I mean, you know, it's literally a, a, a it's it's a like a punch to the gut. Yeah. Just because I think prior to all that, you know, me being a, a gang member and doing everything I was doing back in Chicago, it was always just about me, myself and I. And you never really, uh, never really looked into the big picture kind of thing. And for me, when all that stuff kind of started happening, it honestly started kind of playing all these memories back. And even from my parents coming here to this country, you know, uh, illegally years ago, and and thankfully because of uh, you know President Reagan, they were afforded the opportunity to stay here, and therefore I was able to join the military. And so all those things, this is like okay. This is what it's all come down to. Like, here's my opportunity to, you know, do something uh, for this country that has done so much for my family, myself. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, like we mentioned early, you are involved with an organization that helps supported veterans. And while maybe you're a little bit older than some of them, or maybe some of them are your age as well, you said your parents were allowed to stay here by President Reagan after they came here illegally. And maybe you can speak on this more. Did a lot of these guys who joined the military who were illegal joined because they wanted to give to a country that they were hoping would give to them. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's really what it comes down to is a lot of us realize uh, at some point in time in our life that, um, you know, maybe we've been living everything just for ourselves and never really looked at, like I said earlier, the big picture um, and, and doing something uh, for this country that has offered us so much has given us so much uh to be quite honest um and so we want to do what we can to try to get back to this country just to say you know thank you for everything that 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 they've done for us was that what was on your mind when you joined you did say that you were hoping to you know get away from your hometown and have and go to school once you were done but you saw 9-11 and it made you want to join did your mentality shift about being in the military because of 9-11 it did. Uh, like I said, when I first joined, I really thought I was going to go. I wanted to do something that was really going to allow me the opportunity to, you know, give back to this country and also provide a, 
better opportunity for my soon-to-be daughter. But when 9-11 happened, the idea that I had of only doing my three-year uh, enlistment or commitment literally went right out the window. Uh, I was actually in Iraq in 2003, and uh, I was coming up on the end of my term, uh, my contract. And so right away, without any hesitation or doubt, I already knew that I wanted to stay in the military and see this uh, see this thing through. And so I re-enlisted uh, you know, for four more years when I was when I was deployed overseas. Um, and I continue to do that. You know, my whole goal after 9-11, uh, honestly, was to stay in the military and retire after, you know, 20, 25 years of service. And we'll get into the specifics of who exactly the deported veterans are. But do you think a lot of them enlisted with the hope of getting citizenship? Or do you think some of them saw 9-11 and decided to join or remain in because of that, too? I think it was a mixture, to tell you the truth. This is just from conversations that I've had from some of uh, some of those individuals. Um, you know, some of them were before, uh, some of the individuals that are, have been deported are, you know, you're looking back at at, uh, uh, Gulf, at the Gulf War, uh, Desert Storm era kind of thing, um, even Vietnam veterans. Uh, but you wow. are seeing, obviously, now uh, even Iraq and Afghanistan veterans being deported, obviously. Uh, but it was honestly a mixture of both. It was individuals that wanted an opportunity to, uh, you know, be here, be be citizens of this country, you know, of their home, because um, this is all they've, they've ever really known. Uh, but it was really a lot of them just wanted to do something because they all felt that, you know, that punch the gut, like I said, uh, they wanted to do their part to give back. So let's kind of walk through their thought process. So they're here, they want to stay here, or they want to join the military because of 9-11. So they decided that they are going to go fight. How do they join the military? How does that happen? How is somebody who's not a citizen allowed to join the military? Yeah, so um, I'm honestly still a little uh, unfamiliar with the exact process, but I know that there is a specific waiver that they can do, that the recruiters do. I mean, the the, the, the recruiters are, are the gurus when it comes to this stuff, to tell you the truth. They're, they're the ones that know all the ins and outs on how to get uh, uh, people into the military. Uh, but I know that there's a waiver that they can apply for to allow these individuals to join the military as long as they don't have they haven't been uh, convicted of any, you know, criminal, major criminal offenses that allows them to join the military. And then while they're in the military, uh, they automatically get put into the system to go through an expedited process to, uh, you know, gain their residency because they don't get their citizenship. They first have to go through the process of becoming permanent residents and then they can apply for citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so during the, this is, under the Bush era, right? During the Bush era in the Gulf War yeah. and then under his son as well, and probably Clinton. But primarily I'm talking about um, the early 2000s. A lot of them are enlisting and joining the military and then they go off and they get deployed and then they come back and then some of them are getting deported. How does that happen? So it's a couple different things. There's a lot of gaps um, in between, you know, obviously the immigration system and, um, but also really within the Department of Defense too, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, during major combat operations or, and, and, and those surges in Iraq uh, and also having Afghanistan going on at the same time, uh, commanders' uh, main priority at that time was really to ensure that uh, they were at combat strength to be able to deploy their units overseas, uh, whatever they needed to do to make sure they had the proper amount of soldiers, equipment, et cetera. Uh, 
So what would happen is that these individuals would get deployed, you come back, and it was just a, such a quick turnaround. I mean, you come back, they tell you, quote unquote, that you'd be back stateside for a year, but in reality, you'd only be at home for a few months before you deploy because you had all training exercises and stuff like that. Uh, so what happened is that a lot of these individuals that had to go through the immigration process um, pretty much just got tossed to the side. Their immigration uh, process or cases uh, were not a priority for a lot of commanders. And honestly, some of them didn't even know uh, or were completely unaware of what the process needed to be like in order for them to you know, become permanent residents. They just figured that the minute they signed on the dotted line on that contract, uh, for Uncle Sam, that that was automatically going to push him through uh, that system. But there is another process that the officers had to follow to help them get legal status. And they had to do this while they were serving, right? They couldn't do this after? Right, exactly. You can you can still apply for another, for, to go through the citizenship uh, process after you get out of the military, but you no longer qualify for that expedited system. That expedited system specifically, they're in place to help out those uh, those active duty uh, individuals in the military to help them get through. Um, so you can still go and do it once you're out of the military. Uh, but there's a couple of problems that happen with that. The first one was that, number one, a lot of these individuals didn't even realize that they were not uh, good to go, like we say in the military. Uh, they they thought that, you know, when they signed on the dotted line, they... They had automatically uh, become uh, residents. Uh, they didn't know any other stuff. And so the other part of the equation was because of all these combat operations, you had a lot of these individuals coming back from overseas, not just the, you know, the deported veterans, but just veterans in general coming back and dealing with severe PTSD issues, which, uh, as we know from what we've seen in the media, and a lot of things has caused them to get themselves in a lot of legal situations. And that's the problem right there is that the minute they, they get themselves into any kind of legal situation, because they are residents and not citizens, they automatically uh, fall into, into that deportation process through uh, immigration uh, services. What would happen with someone who was deployed, gets injured, and has not filled out the expedited citizenship forms because they're getting deployed? And so they get deployed, they get injured. And then they get discharged and they didn't have the expedited um, pathway. Does it, is it still open to them or no? They're kicked out and they have to go through the normal pathway. Yeah, they have to go through the normal pathway. Uh, that, that expedited system is really only while you are still uh, in the military. That seems just very flawed to me as someone who just got hurt for their the country that they're hoping to be a citizen of. And now they are taken out of that process because of their injury. It is. It's, it's, it's pretty flawed. And like I said, there's a lot of different issues going on here. And like I said, it's not just even on the immigration side, but you have it on the DOD side. Mm -hmm. And even on the, on the immigration side, uh, one of the main things is that um, when an individual is being deported, one of the questions that is supposed to be asked is that they are uh, uh, a veteran. And if they are identified as a veteran, um, they're supposed to be put into another uh, into another group uh, where they get more in-depth uh, uh, questions and they ask a little bit more about, you know, their service and things like that to give them uh, a, a better opportunity to still kind of stay stateside. Uh, they're supposed to be tracking that information, putting that information into into some kind of a database 
Um, but unfortunately, none of that stuff has been happening. And How do we know it's not happening? No, no. And so honestly, a lot of this stuff really uh, from the conversations that I've had with some of the folks that are really have been involved with this for a long time, uh, like the ACLU and a couple other individuals, uh, especially the, mil- the deported military veterans, the time when this really hit its peak was during uh, President Clinton's uh, administration. Uh, that's when they were really seeing large groups of, uh, of military veterans being deported. Uh, it's picked up also now in, 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 in uh, recent years as well, too. Um, but like I said, the main thing here is that uh, when these individuals are getting deported, so there's, there's supposed to be some kind of tracking uh, system database that uh, gives us a little bit of a broader picture of who these individuals are and why they're getting deported, and especially if they were identified as veterans. But unfortunately, that hasn't been happening. How do we know it's not happening? Because we have those conversations with uh, with, with U- U.S. Customs uh, and Immigration Services, um, and they have actually come on record and admitted themselves, too, that they currently don't have any of that data, any of that information that they can give out. So a lot of the data collection that you have seen for some of these different reports that, that have come out and people have done has literally been getting boots on the ground, to sort of say, and getting individuals go, to go out there and actually um, – connect with these individuals that have been deported in Mexico and Belize and the Dominican Republic and Jamaica and be like, hey, were you a veteran? Were you deported? When were you deported? What happened? So that's how we've been getting all the data. And I guess I would like to ask sort of like, who are these people? You just mentioned many different ethnicities. It's not people think when they hear illegal immigration, they automatically think Central America or Mexico, but that's not the case. I've talked to you before and you've said that there's people from even Asia getting deported. Uh, So I guess I want to ask, who are these people? And then additionally, you said that in recent years, more of them have been getting deported. Are you talking under the Obama administration, the Trump administration or both? Yeah, really, the Obama administration is where we started seeing a lot more um, more issues. And I've had some conversations with some of the folks from the current administration. Um, and they were, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of information that they just were not aware of that, that uh, even people from within the immigration services prior to them, even this administration coming aboard that they were not aware of. And so now it's popped up on their radar and now they're being more proactive on trying to actually bring on board individuals that have been dealing with this stuff for a while to figure out what kind of solutions uh, they might be able to figure out. Um, I know there's a couple different, uh, uh, you know, policy things that we're working on right now. There's a, there, there's a couple different uh, uh, bills that some folks in Congress are trying to pass to try to get. Uh, these individuals some access to services uh, because that's one of the things right there is that once these individuals become deported, uh, they don't have access to the VA healthcare system um, that they normally would in here. Mm-hmm. And we'll certainly get into that because you've told me some atrocities, but uh, so you have talked to the administration and they were unaware of it. So, I mean, this is sort of an immigration issue, but I also think that this is something um, that you're coming at with you're you're talking to the Trump administration about it. A lot of the other immigration groups aren't doing that, you know, they're just being very compatible with the administration. And because of that, I'm assuming you have bipartisan support. Yeah, I think that's the thing right there is that it's from what I've read uh, and some of the conversations I've had with uh, with people is that, 
it's been one of those things where they try to figure out, is this an immigration issue or is this a veterans issue? Um, mm-hmm. And to me, obviously, given my military background, I was like, yeah, it's a little bit of an immigration issue. But to me, it's more of a veterans issue because the minute that an individual signs on the dotted line, uh, you know, that, 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 that does away with the whole immigration part of, of the equation is really just about what do we need to do to take care of this military veteran who was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice if need be. And just to push back a little bit on that, do you think that would incentivize more people to come here illegally if they see a path to residency that is more or less easier than going through the court system? They can just join the military. I mean, obviously the military is a huge sacrifice. I'm not diminishing that. What I'm saying is more people might see an easier way of staying here in the U.S., maybe more incentivized to come here. Yeah, I think maybe it could. I mean, I think that people, there's a lot of people out there in this in this world who see and realize what this country has to offer, um, and they want to be a part of that. And, and they're willing to go ahead and, 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 you know, put their life on the line, and that's what it takes in order to be able to create a better future for, for their families. I definitely think that, I mean, I think anybody would, would, would do that. Um, but uh, that's also why I think that there's so much opportunity for us to uh, really look at our immigration, our flawed immigration system, and really revamp it. Uh, because if not, what's going to happen is that we keep trying to do these different uh, quick fixes, um, and we keep trying to put a, a, a Band-Aid and a sucking chest wound uh, when it comes to immigration issues uh, here in our country. And we really need to sit down uh, on both sides of the aisle and really come up with a solid game plan to try to uh, improve our immigration policies. Well, how do you improve it? I mean, I don't want to get into a whole immigration debate, but what I'm asking is like, where where does it stop? Where where do you draw the line as into how much illegal immigration you can tolerate? Or are you saying we should have more paths to legal immigration, maybe military service being one of them? Definitely. I agree with you. I think that should be one of the options. I think when people talk about immigration in general, um, we want to we, we, we want to get this idea that immigration is just going to be kind of like a one solution kind of thing. And that's really not it, uh, because there's so many different factors that go into it. One of those things is you look at individuals, especially uh, with border states like California, Texas, uh, New Mexico, uh, you know, Arizona, things like that, where people don't want those opportunities to, you know, become uh, permanent citizens or residents of this country, but they like the opportunities of being able to come here, work, and still go back home. So incorporating some of those things like the Braceros program, there were, you know, uh, back in the day, allowing those in- individuals to come back and forth and have those opportunities, uh, opening up the opportunities for um, joining the military is another one. And then really, I honestly, the other one right now that we've been working on, uh, as you know, within the last few years, has really been uh, offering an opportunity for, for dreamers, uh, individuals, you know, who this is this is home. This is this is all they know. And uh, they've been productive members of society. And a lot of them are, you know, working right on the front lines in their healthcare industry and system and identifying ways for us to be able to keep them here. So that way they can continue to pay taxes, continue to. Uh, give back to our society and be productive members of of it. But if we keep making these pathways for people who already came illegally, then how do we stop more people from coming illegally? We saw the caravans and, you know, 
eventually puts a stress on the welfare systems in many different states. So where do we draw the line? Do we secure our borders? Do we get rid of incentives? How do you have a balance? And, and, I mean, I think that's it. Is you had to have a balance. I was, I was like, look, I, I, I will be the first one to, to, uh, to tell everyone that we need to secure our borders, plain and simple. From my time to in your the military. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever it takes, whether that be a, a, a technology uh, a focus or whatever it is, we need to secure our borders because at the end of the day, from my military experience, I know for a fact that there's people out there in this world that want to do us harm simply because of the fact that we are Americans and we live where we do and that, that that's it. Um, so we need to secure our borders. But I think by also addressing some of these different issues that we're talking about right now within our immigration system um, and, and and sitting down and really coming up with a solid game plan with between uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, we can come up with some kind of solution that would allow the opportunity to continue to let individuals, like I said, come here, work here, uh, who for those who don't want to permanently be citizens or residents, um, work with individuals who would look at, a, at, at the military as, a, as an opportunity for them to, to become citizens um, and really looking at some of those programs. So, uh, I'll be honest with you. Like if we're looking at those programs, especially for individuals that are already here uh, illegally, you know, putting restrictions on like, look, if there's going to be a pathway for you to become a resident, um, you will not be able to qualify for certain programs between X amount of time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's fair. I think that there's definitely, if you're going to look at for some of these individuals who who have not committed any any uh, any major crimes or anything, then you're going to look at an opportunity to give them, uh, give them a chance to stay here. Yeah, there's going to be some fines and stuff like that that needs to get paid. But if we don't come up with some kind of solution and really revamp our our immigration policies, I think that it's just going to be a lot of the same old where we're going to see these massive amounts of people that are going to try to, you know, flood the gates. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have a very nuanced answer here. You're not falling into party lines at all right now. In one hand, you're saying we should secure our borders. And in the other, you're saying we should um, improve immigration, maybe even allow some more immigration in terms of economic immigration. So I think you are very, you're being very nuanced in here and you're bringing up solutions to, you know, Maybe they don't want to stay here. Crossing the border is risky, so might as well give some more visas to come and work in the farms, which in California is a serious thing. And there's during the coronavirus pandemic, there's been issues of not having enough workers on the farms because the borders are closed. So I think you're being very nuanced here, and I think that's good. And you know, we were talking about whether the deported veterans was a immigration issue or a veteran issue, and I can see why we could call it both. But to me, it's sort of we're, we're not keeping our word. We said that we would help these guys get legal status if they sacrificed their lives for us. And we didn't do that. We didn't keep that word because our commanders, our officers were too preoccupied. And to me, that's just so against our American values because we should be keeping our word. And I don't know, I guess that's my take on it, that these guys needed help. Our immigration system and our legal system and our tax system is so hard to navigate. And immigrants out of out of anybody definitely needs more assistance with that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example right now. Um, there's two individuals that I'm very good friends with. 
Uh, one of them is, and then uh, he's an older gentleman. He's in 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 Chicago land area. Um, the guy is an entrepreneur. Uh, pays probably millions of dollars in taxes. Has been here for twenty something years already, like 26, 27 years in the in the country. He's a permanent resident. Uh, he has been trying to become a U.S. citizen for the last three and a half, four years, um, and he has run into hurdle after hurdle. I mean, if you're talking about an individual who pays his taxes, uh, is not a criminal, uh, you know, he does a ton of stuff in the community, uh, and he's having these challenges. Another one is uh, a young lady out of Colorado. Uh, same thing. She is an entrepreneur. She has a couple different restaurants. And as a matter of fact, has been out of the country for about two years now. I think she's been trying to come back through different visa applications and, 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 and um, she even opened up, expanded her restaurants, her businesses and has hired more employees. Uh, and so she's just trying to come over here to, to, you know, continue to grow her business, continue to get back to the community but these are the perfect example of these individuals that we identify that are within our, you know, within our communities or in the one from Colorado outside of the country. And she's trying to come back to continue running her businesses and has everything in order. But the system is just so broken that it makes it so impossible for them to even be able to come uh, into the United States uh, legally. You know what I mean? Mm, I call that good old American bureaucracy. And sadly, we've been seeing more and more of that recently where things are just, I mean, these immigration courts are overloaded. They're having issues with processing things. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things I, I remember when I was working for a congressman in, in, in Colorado, Congressman Scott Tipton, one of the things that he was really working hard on, for example, where you brought it up a little bit earlier was the visa situation. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of visas that are allotted to, to each country kind of thing. Um, and so he wanted to work on some uh, some kind of legislation that, you know, whatever visas were not uh, being used. So, for example, if Britain got 500 visas and they only used 250, give us the opportunity to provide or offer those visas to, to somebody else who's still looking to, to, to utilize those visas kind of thing. We'll be right back. In 2016, I founded Lone Conservative, a platform and community for conservative college students to write about conservative values, ideas, and policies. With many conservative students feeling alone on their overwhelmingly leftist campuses, creating a sense of community is one of Lone Conservative's primary goals. Lone Conservative has worked with over 300 contributors from 48 states to help develop the future of conservatism. Help us continue and support Lone Conservative by going to loanconservative.com and clicking donate to help more conservative students have a voice. Again, that's loanconservative.com. Thank you. And so I just want to jump back into my other question. Who are these deported veterans? You said there's some from the Vietnam era. Tell us about some of the people that you've met. Yeah, uh, the one honestly that I that 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 I've had the the best relationship with is Hector Barajas. Uh, he's actually here in uh, California. He's located out of uh, Inglewood, uh, but he just um, he was uh, repatriated uh, back into about a year and a half ago. So he's a uh, he's back home now. But he was out of the country uh, since uh, I think it was nineteen ninety six. I think he was. He, the year he, I was born. 
Yeah, so he's been out of the country since then, and he uh, he's backstage saying now he's uh, he's he got his citizenship back, and part of what helped that was that the uh, governor here in California uh, they gave um, uh, gave him a pardon uh, on his uh, convictions, and so that opened up the pathway for him to be able to come back and go through the process. Uh, so he actually runs what's called the Deported Veteran Support House, which is a nonprofit organization that actually has uh, what he calls the bunker or the bunkers, uh, because there's two of them. There's one in, uh, in Tijuana, um, Mexico, and there's one in Chihuahua and, uh, in Juarez. And so he created these, uh, uh, these support houses or these bunkers, uh, as a, as a place, uh, for deported veterans to have somewhere to go to, uh, when they were being deported. Um, so that way they wouldn't be stranded on the street. So he's, uh, created this nonprofit where he helps, uh, veterans that have been deported kind of get, uh, get you know, uh, off the ground and help them connect with employers and try to get them going. Uh, he has very limited resources because the nonprofit world down in Mexico obviously is not the same as it is here in the United States. So they have a lot of different challenges and, and obstacles they have to go deal with. And especially with the current Mexican president, he's not very uh, uh, supportive of um Nonprofits helping out communities. He feels like it's the government's mm-hmm. responsibility. Um, so he's not really being active and 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 helping nonprofits uh, prosper down there. So I'm picturing there's a small little building with bunk beds and a place for people to temporarily stay. Is that what this place is like? Exactly. So, like I said, one of the problems that was happening for a long time and still happening is that there was no data collection. So when these veterans arrive down to, let's say, at the deported veterans house at the bunker down in Tijuana, they go through an in process, uh, you know, set up down there with uh, with uh, Hector, and he makes sure he collects other all their information into the system, so that way they can have that actual data about how many port, uh, the who, what, when, where, and why. Um, once he kind of figures out everything, he starts kind of talking to the veteran and figure out what their needs are. Uh, whether it be uh, mental health, uh, some of them may have family that's still living down in Mexico. Uh, so if need be, he'll help them get to wherever their family is going to be. Some of them don't really have anybody or anyone down there because all their families have been up in the States, you know, since since they were little. Uh, so they just kind of try to just fire and figure out which direction to go uh, whenever they get uh, these veterans down there. Why are they deported? Obviously, they're not just rounding up anyone who gave their information to be in the military to deport them, but I'm assuming some of them have some convictions. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, These guys have committed crimes, uh, plain and simple. Some of them have been, you know, for drugs. Some of them have been, uh, you know, different, different things with domestic violence, whatever it may be. Uh, so, as, uh, you know, I'm not going to share it, but these guys have committed crimes, plain and simple. These men were legal residents who say they were promised U.S. citizenship when they joined and served in the U.S. military. But after leaving the service, they each committed a crime and were later deported from the very country they fought and were willing to die for. The problem is that a lot of them, once they got out of the military, just, you know, like a lot of us, regardless of whether, you know, they were, uh, residents or citizens, uh, like a lot of us, we we struggle a lot with PTSD and, and, and you know, and the stresses of combat and war. Um, and everybody finds different ways and avenues to try to deal with uh, with their demons. 
a lot of them turn to drugs and alcohol and that just sends them down the the wrong path. Um, I was one of those individuals that once I got out of the military, I suffered with a lot of PTSD issues. I mean, I, uh, you know, I got admitted to a seven week inpatient program for the, for the VA for PTSD uh, at mm-hmm. the Denver Medical uh, Center. And between that and an organization that I connected with in Colorado, they helped me get my life back on track. But a lot of these guys and girls don't, uh, don't, don't ever find that. And so they turn to a lot of these drugs and alcohol and, and, and they go down, uh, you know, in a bad direction. Uh, sometimes it's not even that much. I have another friend of mine who was in the military with me, uh, got out of the military, had never really taken any, med- any medication. Uh, his first day out of the service, when he got connected with the VA, they gave him, I think it was like seven, nine different prescriptions. Uh, they told him to take them. He took his medication like the VA had told him to. By the time he woke up, he, he was face down on the ground in his uh, in his apartment uh, with the Colorado Springs Police Department around him. And uh, turned out that he had actually taken out a gun and put it to his wife's head. I mean, this was an individual that never had any domestic violence issues, never had any, any drug or alcohol-related issues, uh, no issues with the law enforcement. But those drugs, that mixture, that cocktail that you get from the VA sometimes... Uh, it's a pretty bad combination, and it'll, and it'll put veterans in a situation that they never thought they'd find themselves in. Are we talking about people who were honorably discharged or people who were dishonorably discharged and started acting up? Like, was there a lot of these people's services very clean, very noble? Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so you, you get a lot of them. You get a lot of them that have been honorably discharged. They did the time they got out, and they just been dealing with your demons, and you had other ones that, you know, they were already dealing with issues uh, with PTSD while they were in the service and led them to get dishonorably discharged or getting other than honorable discharges. Um, and so it's really a mixture, a, a mixture of, mo- of both, but honestly, it's more, uh, individuals who completed their, 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 uh, contract and got honorably discharged, uh, that we're seeing, uh, are the ones that are being getting deported. And for those of you who don't know, Jose is one of my friends. We've talked about this over the past year, and it's, he's made me passionate about it. And we were supposed to go down to Tijuana and see the the bunker, but, you know, coronavirus. Um, but we have talked about this. And I guess the thing that makes me the most angry is when you join the VA, it does not matter, or when you join the military, it does not matter if you are a citizen or not. You are supposed to be guaranteed those VA services. You're supposed to have medical help for whatever happened to your body or your brain when you were, were in the military. And you told me, quite frankly, obviously the ones who are deported are not getting VA services, but some of them are amputees. Yeah, yeah, you have a lot of a lot of different individuals. I mean. When you look around and some of these individuals that are dealing with a lot of these issues, whether it be, you know, uh, like I said, MPTs, whether it be individuals that are suffering from severe uh, mental health issues, whatever it is. I mean, it's 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 just insane to me that uh, the individuals that signed up that line that were more than willing to give their life up if need be um, got back home and essentially just had their government turned their back on them. To me, that's just unacceptable. Um, and then, and, 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 you know, this this message really should go out to anybody who is uh, an elected official, really, that has either A, served in the military themselves, or B, has uh, family members who are in the military. This, this, this should almost be 
a, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, a call to action that we need to do something about this. This is obviously a problem and we just can't keep sweeping it under the rug. Uh, especially those individuals that are elected officials that served in the military. It is our responsibility to take care of our brothers and sisters in arms. If nobody else will, it is up to us to make sure that we are there and we have their back. Do you guys have contact with people like Dan Crenshaw and some others? Um, not with uh, Dan Crenshaw, but I do with others, obviously, just because of my time uh, working in politics. I, I have had these conversations with a couple individuals. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I need to do a better job of getting out there and reaching out to these individuals more uh, uh, more now than, than I have before, uh, mm-hmm. because we really need to change this thing around. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gabriel, or I mean, Gabriel, Hector, Hector has actually, uh, he, he, he has actually been, been called, uh, uh, over to testify at, at the house on, in DC. Um, so they've heard his testimony different people have heard, you know, what's going on. Um, but yeah, I think that we this is this is an issue where when we shouldn't be looking at, at, at party lines. This is just what are we mm-hmm. doing for our military veterans, regardless of party. And to be honest, my personal opinion: if you commit a crime, I don't believe you have a right to stay here. But if you join the military and PTSD or or anything you know that you could attribute to your military service, and you commit a crime for that, obviously, like you still have your own personal responsibility, but. I mean, you served our country. You deserve the VA benefits that you can get mental health-wise, physical-wise. And so, like, this is not an immigration issue to me when it comes to this. Like, yes, if you commit a crime, you you don't have a place here. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right? Especially if it's a very severe crime. But if you committed a crime and you're a veteran, we should at least afford you some help, you know? So I think it's really sad that they're living in Mexico and some of them don't even, you know, they don't even have any family there. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. And so I kind of want to turn to another aspect of this that most people would not think of. When I first heard about this, I thought it was absolutely crazy. Uh, there was a recent documentary about these veterans, and you guys are going to think I'm crazy, but it, this, is, this is what the documentary says, and I'm sure, Jose, you can speak on it, that the cartels in Mexico have been taking some of these deported veterans and either paying them or forcing them to train their their cartel members, how to clear rooms, how to operate weapons, how to make explosives. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So that's definitely happening down there is, uh, you know, they, I think they talked about it in the documentary a little bit where they really see a gold mine when they find out that they're dealing with, um, with military veteran who's down there because they realize, especially if it's a combat veteran, uh, they realize that the individual has like a plethora of skills that they can bring to the table that their sicarios uh, may not already have, especially when you're talking about, you know, uh, urban settings and mount training and clearing out buildings and teaching those tactics to fight on the streets. I mean, apply directly to, if to, you know, sicarios that are uh, uh, creating these hits and, and, you know, in the cities of Tijuana or, or Morelia or Guadalajara, I mean, if they get that training, that knowledge, that know-how from military veterans, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to uh, jump on it right away. And you're absolutely right when you said they have really two options when they get down there. If they find out that they have these individuals who have these uh, certain skills, 
um, they'll either A, go up to them and offer money, be like, look, we know you're here. You don't have any money. We have a job for you. And they go willingly because they literally see no other option. Or B, they'll tell them, like, well, you have two options. Either A, you come and work for us and you make some money. Or B, you die. Take your choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's it's insane to me. You know, President Trump has said that he is declaring a war on the cartels or already engaging in a war with the cartels. And I might sound crazy, but this is a national security risk in my mind, that you have the cartel learning from people who are highly trained um, in clearing rooms and combat warfare, and you're training the cartel. Obviously, the cartel has a lot of weapons and, you know, they have a lot of resources, but do they have intense military training from the, the strongest, most elite military in the world? No, they don't. And now they're getting that. And I see that as very risky. Yeah, well, you look at like, for example, with the Seta cartel, you know, which were, you know, former special operators from the Mexican military. Yeah, they were they they, they were uh, extremely sophisticated and well trained. But where did their training come from? Yeah, do we really want our DEA guys up against guys who have training from former military members? I don't think so. I don't I mean, think we want that. And I don't know if you've ever seen the video. This was years ago, but there was a video, a, a, a certain case here in California. I think it was in, I think it was up in North and Salinas or something like that, where there was a, a former, uh, former military member um, who got into a shootout with police, uh, police officers responding to an armed robbery at a gas station. Um, and he literally laid an ambush uh, for these police officers uh, once they arrived in the scene. And he was literally using the playbook from the mount tactics, you know, pie in the corner, coming around, shooting them with SKS with military tactics. Uh, this was an individual, obviously, who did not join. The, I mean, there was a whole story about him, right? He didn't join the military for the right reasons. He joined the military to get training. and He wanted to bring yeah. it back to use it for his gang because he was a gang member. Um, but it's a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about. Any individual with that certain that type of skill set and applied in places like Mexico, uh, it's extremely dangerous. And like you said, it's a national security. And I guess from here, the only thing you can really do is start putting more pressure on our elected officials to start talking about this. And I believe you went to the White House about this too. Well, I went to, I went up there to DC and we've had some conversations with some different people and we brought it up. And so my thing is that, what, what we figured out is that we need to get this message more out there to uh, members of Congress and Senate and really get them on board uh, on board on this. So that way we can have some kind of legislative, you know, policy put into place that will really start making sure that uh, some of the procedures that are supposed to be in place are actually being used, like taking you know into consideration people's military service records. Because I agree with you 110 percent and so has everybody else is that. If you have committed some kind of major um, capital offense or crime, right, murder or something like that, I'm sorry, but you know what? That shit has sailed, uh, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. But but if it's somebody who has committed a lesser crime that hasn't been nonviolent, then I think we owe it to that individual to really look at the entire picture to see um, if – the reason why they got into legal issues was due to their military service was a tie back to PTSD and things that they are dealing with, uh, you know, emotionally. 
I think a lot of our listeners might be interested in this because I'm sure this is something not, that not many of them have heard about. So how can they get involved to help? How can they contact you if they have questions? Yeah, so they can honestly email me if they have any questions. My you know, email is uh, jc.alanis, A-L-A-N-I-S 81 at gmail.com. Uh, and for those of you that are on social media, uh, you can actually go on, on LinkedIn or, and find Hector Barajas or even on Facebook, you can find the Deported Veterans Support House uh, Facebook page. Um, we're always looking for, for, for any kind of uh, support or assistance. As you know, uh, Cassie, I try to make my trips down there whenever possible to uh, do a uh, resupply or take uh, goods down there to the bunker whenever possible. Uh, whenever I possibly can, obviously with everything going on, we haven't been able to, but uh, if anybody ever feels like getting involved or is interested in learning more, I would definitely look at first and maybe the deported veteran support house on, uh, on, on, on Facebook. It'll give you a lot of information. Jose Alanis, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Cassie Dillon Show is a lone conservative production. It is produced by Tony Kinnett, David Zielinski, Sebastian Thorman, and Keegan Nazari. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case.